You are listening to the Practice Growth Podcast with Sean Terrell. Welcome to the Practice Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Terrell. On this week's episode, I am speaking with David Haynes. David is the Vice President of National Practice Sales with Menlo Dental Transitions. Menlo is a dental practice brokerage headquartered in Tempe, Arizona. David, very excited to have you as a guest. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. So as we dive into the conversation, uh, could you just start with a little background on how you've reached this current point of your career with Menlo? Absolutely. So um, I, my background is more so on the accounting side of things. I went to school to study accounting. I, I later got my MBA uh, with an emphasis in finance. And started my my career as a bank banking analyst, you know, help decision credits, uh, prospects, things like that to the bank, and uh, analyzed a bunch of transactions. And then I worked my way into a dental lending role. Um, got to know Minlo over the years, and uh, ended up doing a tremendous amount of volume in the dental lending arena, specifically centered around acquisition lending. Uh, we I did. You know, plenty of real estate transactions, but my real emphasis and, and niche at the time was in the dental acquisition space. And so took a opportunity to join Menlo as national practice broker and 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 here we are. So kind of in that realm, just I think what would be helpful as well for the audience that isn't as familiar with Menlo Dental Transitions, could you provide a little bit of background about your company? Yeah. So Menlo started as a commercial real estate firm and then uh, in 2008 and then uh, expanded uh, fairly recently after that into uh, into practice sales, specifically dental practice sales. And from that time, we've brokered hundreds of practices, uh, primarily owner-user transactions, owner-user seller, owner-user buyer. Um, we've also uh, helped people transition into um, corporate arrangements, corporate sales, uh, and provided some advice along those lines as well. And we're the uh, clearly the largest uh, practice broker in Arizona and have brokered uh, practices across the country. Um, and that's my job is to expand that footprint uh, specifically in the, in the Southwest, but we've, we've done deals from Alaska to uh, the Northeast. So that's, that's a little bit about us. So as we get into the, the sort of the heart of the discussion today, I know there are several dental practice brokerages in, across the country. And in my experience, there's, there's always some variation between brokerages, between how they sort of blend the relationship between the seller and the buyer, and then the valuation that goes into that process. Uh, could you highlight how you guys sort of handle that blend? Yeah, absolutely. So we have, uh, we, we try and be a full service uh, shop as it, as it pertains to representing sellers. So if somebody wants just a simple appraisal, we can do that. Uh, if they want to uh, immediately go to market and list their practice, we can do that. Uh, we have an associate placement group, and we can, if they decide it's it's better to place an associate rather than to go to market, we can do that as well. Um, it, our our approach is specifically when when they're in my world uh, listing their practice, uh, we analyze the practice. Uh, we prepare what what I consider to be a nice, thorough, but clean perspective. You know, we try not to dump too much information on there, make it easy for the the buyer to understand, make it easy for the banks to make a decision. Uh, so we try and have a very thorough process, uh, very professional uh, photos, 
videos taken of the office. Uh, we go to market, make sure that we're working, that any buyers are working with the correct uh, banks and attorneys to have a nice, smooth transition. So, yes, there's a lot of uh, other brokers out there. Our, our approach is to really dive into the financials. We have a very savvy team uh, with, with financial analysis as kind of a core competency. So our, our job is to eliminate or reduce the, uh, any surprise factor with a, you know, decline by a bank, uh, make sure that these buyers are, are, um, are, are solid and, and have a good shot at getting, getting, getting across the finish line. So related to a dentist selling their practice, there's several paths they can take with that sale. And I thought it might be helpful sort of at the outset here just to walk through what those different paths are. And then um, up to you, I guess I'll put it in your court if you'd like to talk about them as we go along or list them all and then kind of get into the meat and potatoes of how each one works. I think that would be helpful. Could you start with what you think uh, is the best one to start with? As far as different paths that a seller could go, I, you know, we've we engage in discussions from, uh, you know, from very early on. If somebody wants to just simply talk and learn what they can do to best prepare to sell their practice, you know, that's kind of one discussion where we'll have, you know, we'll sit down and say, well, we can do a range of value that's essentially for free and we can analyze their practice at a high level and say, okay, this is about where you'd be. Uh, does that line up with your goals? Yes or no. And then, from there, we can further the discussion to give them some ideas or things they can do to increase their valuation over the coming years in preparation for a sale. Um, so that's that's definitely one path. Other, you know, other paths may include uh, I'm ready to sell now, and we look at uh, owner user sale opportunities or corporate sale opportunities if that's the route that they want to go. That's typically more uh, in line with uh, younger doctors that want to continue practicing, um, but they don't necessarily want to. Um, you know, have the ownership management burden. Uh, so there can be some uh, some different things along those lines. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no. And it, what I what I realized when I asked the question is, and you kind of answered is, I think I probably should have started the question more upstream, like before you even get to the decision of of what are the options for selling your practice, maybe some due diligence and some conversation occurs before that with you and your team in terms of what's the general range and value of the practice. And, and before we even get to figuring out, we've decided to sell it. Um, what are the options and what does that look like? And then kind of what I was driving at was uh, just in, in perusing your website a little bit before our conversation, there was, there was four different paths that a, the dentist who has decided they do want to sell uh, can take in terms of how that sale is structured. And one of them was just completely sell and walk away. Uh, the second one I think was have an associate buy-in. Uh, the third one was uh, sell the practice, but continue to work as an associate, as an employee. And then the fourth was to sell to a group or a dental service organization, a DSO. So I was curious in, in hearing your perspective on the differences between those four exit options and kind of based on the personality and the goals and the, and the philosophies that the owner dentist has, which one kind of works best for, for different uh, variations of that. You know, the most... The most common, the two most common scenarios, I should say, are are, are the, uh, at least in my world, are the corporate sale or the owner user sale, where the seller will then work back for a period of time. So, and and that that second one is by far for me the the, the area that we deal with the most. So it's a retiring doctor. Um, they have no interest in working with any corporations. They want to be done, uh, but they're willing to work back for you know six months, and so. You know, preparing for that moment, um, you know, is important. We're, we're, you know, in that scenario, we're working with somebody that 
has to get a loan from a bank. Uh, they're likely not going to be paying cash for the practice entirely. So uh, we need to make sure that the practice is bankable, that it looks nice. Oftentimes, you know, doing some subtle improvements like, you know, paint and some light cosmetic things, you probably want to avoid like major expenditures because that doesn't really add a whole lot of value to the bank. But that's that's a very common scenario that we that we work with. And uh, and it tends to work out very well. A lot of banks have requirements in terms of how long uh, the associate um, or, or how long the seller needs to stay on as an associate. And, and that can be anywhere from a month to up to six months, uh, just depending on the circumstances and, uh, and, and the specialty that you're in as well. So, you know, a lot of folks will, um, you know, prepare for that situation, try and make the office look as clean as possible. Our objective is to make the office as bankable as possible. Um, cleaning up, you know, it's little things. There's physical things in the office that can be done, but there's also numbers things, right? If you've been expensing a lot of personal items to the office, it's probably good to clean that up, um, you know, things along those lines. And so um, we, our objective is to make that as smooth of a transition as possible, and that's a very common transition. You know, other avenues that you can go are, you know, as you said, the associate placement option. If you've got several years left, have no interest necessarily in working with a corporation or you have a growing practice uh, or you're just trying to meet the demand of the area, uh, placing an associate that could potentially buy down the road is a great option. Um, we really like those transitions because they're very smooth. Banks tend to really like those transitions as well because the, obviously the buyer's already familiar with the practice and most of what's being transferred or lent on is, is the goodwill of the seller and, and an associate already has a leg up in those situations. So that's great. It's very tempting. The downfall there is, uh, you know, there's a lot of associates that change their mind. They're up, up and leave suddenly. You know, it's not just because they're an associate, there's not a guarantee that they'll be, um, you know, a good potential buyer. And we've had some situations where, or we've seen situations where the, you know, associate comes in and, and has every intent to buy. And then a year goes down the road and for whatever reason, they can't qualify for a loan. So that's something that, you know, if the plan is to bring on an associate and sell within a year or two or something like that, uh, it's really important to make sure we have a good qualified buyer. So we need to essentially go through the steps, the sales steps, um, to, to make sure that they're a good, a good eligible buyer, even if it's only a year or two away. You know, checking for things like bankruptcies, um, you know, on the associates level and, and, uh, liquidity and student debt and things along those lines. Those are all things that can derail a, a transaction, even if they've been an associate there. So it's a great option, but it's not, it's not totally foolproof. And, um, there's definitely plenty of work that needs to be done on the front end if that's the, if that's the main, uh, objective. For buyers who are interested in practices that you guys are listing for the seller, how much due diligence are you guys doing on behalf of the seller for that buyer? Is it everything? And and maybe you kind of hit on a few of those things already, but I'm just interested in how you determine on behalf of the seller or help uh, determine on behalf of the seller who's the best buyer for their practice. Our our obligation is generally to the seller. We we primarily represent sellers in this in this process, and so our our mission is to present as much relevant information as possible in a nice clean format so that the buyer can easily understand it and the bank can easily understand it. From that point on, once they go and actually talk to their bank or if they have a, you know, if they want to do some equipment upgrades or things along those lines, that's really up for the up to the buyer. So once you go under contract on a practice, it's really up to the buyer to do 
their own due diligence um, and to make sure that they understand what they're buying. Our, our goal is to present as much of that information as possible, but at the end of the day, our, our obligation and duty is to the seller, typically. And so the buyer will want to go in there and analyze reports, make sure that they understand um, you know, that the procedures that are being performed at the practice are things they can actually do. And on the sale side uh, and representing the seller, our, our objective is the same. We, we want the same outcome, but we really want these buyers to, to um, feel free to do their own due diligence. They don't necessarily have to take our word for it. And the bank may want them to do uh, some additional due diligence. So those are, you know, these are things that are, um, you know, it's tricky because there's not a ton of buyers reps out there. A lot of buyers don't have very good representation in this business. And so we will try and help them along and, and make sure that, you know, a, a buyer is working with the right attorney. If they need a CPA introduction, we can try and kind of point them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's with the objective of having a smooth closing. There, if they want a buyer's rep, you know, we know people in the, in the industry that, uh, that do a good job and we can, you know, we can facilitate introductions to, you know, help that process. But it's really up to the buyer to make sure that they understand, you know, what, what decision they're making. Confidentiality is such a huge part of these transitions. How do you guys handle that? That's really broad, but I, I know there's several layers, but just, uh, yeah, if you could touch on that. Yeah, so confidentiality is really tricky. I think that's one of the advantages in working with a broker. Um, you know, a lot of people will consider uh, for sale by owner or maybe just working a deal out with their, you know, some, whoever's in their trusted advisor circle, if it's their attorney or CPA or something along those lines, if they hear somebody, they'll try and work a deal out. It's really tough to maintain confidentiality in those settings. Um, and for a lot of people, you know, confidentiality is something that they want. Um, you know, they don't necessarily want to notify their staff until they have a solid deal in hand or until, you know, just before closing. Um, other people just don't care about confidentiality. They live in a small town or have a, you know, kind of a real niche practice. It's easy to figure out who the seller is. <laughs> so it's, it's sometimes really difficult to maintain that confidentiality just based on the type of deal. Um, but in the large majority of cases, sellers prefer to maintain confidentiality. And it's so hard to do that if you, you know, sell on your own. Um, using a broker that I guess, you know, that's, that's one of the advantages, right? Is that we can, we can advertise the practice. We, we get non-disclosures signed and, you know, typically that, that advertisement will look something like, you know, general dental office in such and such town or county, as long as, you know, those things don't give it away. And, you know, our goal is to be as discreet as possible. We, you know, and, and, the, the tricky part about this and the unfortunate thing is that in this business, you know, some buyers or prospects will sign the non-disclosure and then not honor it or have any intention of honoring it at all. And so it's not a foolproof thing, mm-hmm. um, but that's, you know, that is, uh, if that's your objective, then that's our objective as well. And we're going to do our best to market the practice in a way to where it can't be figured out uh, just from a listing, you know, an ad. And, you know, once, uh, and and then and then once it's kind of you know out there, how do we how do we manage? Let's say a neighbor, you know, if a neighbor contacts us to say, "Hey, I'm interested in this practice. Can you give me more information?" We will um, we will check back with the with the seller in those settings to say, "Hey, do you want to share with this person? You know, do you not? Here's some pros and cons, things to think about." And so the neighbor example, someone or a practice that's close in proximity, geographically nearby, that just happened to stumble upon the listing or I guess discover the listing? Yeah, if they see an ad that says, 
you know, dental practice for sale in South San Diego or wh- wherever it is, right? And then they're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm interested in either adding a location or maybe a chart purchase or they, sometimes they just want to poke around and they don't necessarily know who it is, but they see that it's in their, in their area and, and they, they reach out. This happens actually quite a bit uh, where, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, I had this happen actually just like last week where we have a practice in a smaller town, somebody in that same town wanted information you know, about the office. And so that's when I get on the phone with the seller and say, okay, here, do we, do we want to entertain this discussion? Is there any history with this person? Um, you know, how, how do you, how do you want us to proceed? And, and, and there we take direction from the, you know, from the doctor and take their input. If they want to, if they want to take that risk, there is somewhat of a risk right. doing that. They could lose staff or patients to that person. So, you know, it's not the end of the world. Confidentiality is, is, it's, you know, it's one of those things. There are some benefits to sharing with your patients and staff that you're selling. There's less of a blind side, mm. but there's also downsides to it as well. So, you know, my objective is to express some of these different variables to, to the seller. And at the end of the day, it's their decision. If they want to, you know, turn up the risk and share it with some of these local parties, we can, um, you know, but it's a, it, that this is not an easy uh, one size fits all thing. We, we very much, you know, look at it case by case, buyer by buyer, in some instances. That's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking now of like in residential real estate where, you know, you see a house listed as, or an open house on your street and some people will show up just to see what the house looks like on the inside. Like how much of that intent is actually pure interest in buying the practice and how much of it's just snooping around? <laughs> oh, I'd say and the large majority of it in our experience is just snooping around, you know? <laughs> and so if the practice happens to sit on the market for a little while or, or for whatever reason, you know, then, then, then we can maybe open that up to more local parties. Uh, hopefully we're not in that situation, but the, you know, we, we definitely don't want the, the person that's just poking around to see what their margins are like or what kind of procedures they're doing or fee schedules, that kind of stuff. So you hit on some of the advantages already of using a broker or a transition specialist like Menlo, uh, confidentiality being a big one. What are some of the other uh, key advantages of using uh, a broker? You know, oftentimes I find myself, we don't really compete with too many other brokerages, honestly. It seems like my competition is more the concept of, of for sale by owner. The do it yourself or uh, that wants so to kind of handle it on their own. It, yeah. Yeah. And I'm the same way. I watch a YouTube video and I try it. So it's not, <laughs> you know, I don't necessarily blame people for, for wanting to, you know, try or at least take a look at it. But oftentimes their mentality is this, okay, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to look, try this first and have some discussions. And if it doesn't work, then I'll engage with the broker. And they're really trying to save on a fee. You know, they don't want to pay a broker's fee. And they think that maybe their neighbor had an experience that was positive, you know, on a for sale by owner situation. So that, that tends to be the biggest, one of the biggest hurdles that we, uh, that we, uh, uh, see. And, you know, what happens is there's, there's really no one person that's fighting for the seller in those situations, except for the seller, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have that expert that's in your corner uh, fighting for you to get the maximum value, fighting for you if you own the real estate to get the, the, the proper lease term, because that can have an impact, you know, for years down the road if you continue to own that real estate. So you don't have anybody in your corner that has expertise that's fighting for you. And oftentimes I, I find that even though we do charge a fee, uh, we often 
find somewhere somehow to make up that fee. The other challenge is that if somebody goes to list and they don't price it uh, appropriately, let's say they price it too high, then the package becomes stale, then it has a negative stigma. That puts us in a really challenging situation. There's some instances where we just won't take on a listing, even if it can be an okay practice, if it's sat there on the market too long, overcoming that negative stigma it can be very challenging. And so it's almost like you have one good shot to, um, you know, to get that practice listed and marketed properly. And so, you know, do you want to take that shot, um, you know, on your own? That's up to you. I mean, in some cases, these, you know, these deals can get done. Uh, but in, in other cases, they're, you know, they, they get down the road with a buyer and find out the buyer can't get qualified. And just that right there can create a scale listing if it has to go through multiple buyers, right? And then you have to explain that story to, mm-hmm. you know, to the next person that comes along. And it's just, these are challenging situations. Valuation and working with banks because of COVID has never been trickier. So how do you, you know, previously we had valuations just kind of ticking on their way up and, um, you know, nice, good trend lines unless the practice somehow had a decline. So now we have a down year for most people because of COVID. And so we have to somehow address that. That throws all the, a lot of valuation models off that throws the bank off in terms of how they, how much they can lend. So how addressing that, you know, is really tricky. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you do that if you're if you're just a doc that's trying to manage a practice, sell? It's hard to maintain confidentiality. I mean, these are all things. Um, these are all these are all important considerations. And lastly, I, and I kind of touched on this is, what, let's just say you get together with an attorney, and they're like, yeah, I can help you out and get this deal done. You know, th- at some point, somewhere, or maybe it's a CPA doing that. At some point, somewhere along the way, that one person is going to be dual. Uh, representing essentially both parties, even though there may not be a signed agreement that they're trying to satisfy both parties for the, for the benefit of getting a transaction done. And that kind of comes back to my first point. You don't really have anybody in your corner under that scenario. And so I think my, you know, our stance is obviously, and that's kind of a softball, you know, answer for me, but <laughs> our, our, our answer, our answer is like, clearly you want somebody fighting for you kind of in your corner that knows what they're doing. Um, that can get the deal done. And that's, and that's beneficial to both buyer and seller in those instances. So if I heard you correctly, it can work out on a for sale by owner or a DIY approach, but it really takes the perfect set of circumstances and just dipping your toe into the water by yourself can really taint your practice, the buyer pool, and kind of the value of it if, if you make the wrong misstep right out of the gate by yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I, I have to fully acknowledge the for sale by owner market. As a banker, I did some of these deals, you know, so it, it's definitely out there. People do it. Um, there's, there's lots of information, but there's something to be said about the person with recent experience, expertise. I mean, we've, we've as a firm sold hundreds of practices at this point over the years. I think we're getting close to 400. So, you know, having somebody that's done this, Time and time again, that has recent knowledge, data, market, you know, data and experience. It makes a big difference. And as a banker, I hated working on uh, for sale by owner transactions because I kind of had to put on the broker hat to some extent to say, like, listen, I can't tell you, you know, this or that. You know, I, as a banker, there's some restrictions. You can't, you can't advise people on uh, either tax issues, you know, how to allocate the price of the practice. You can't, you can't do the things, but you kind of have to like you know, point them in the right direction and hope that they go there. And, and, and how, you know, it's just a really, it puts, 
it puts some of these parties like the banker, the CPA, the attorney in a tricky situation. So you, those type of professionals like yourself and the ones you mentioned know the blind spots can sort of sometimes see the for sale by owner people going or walking into the blind spot or not seeing that blind spot, but at the same time, not being in a position where they can totally stop them from doing it. Yeah, it puts them in a really uncomfortable situation because let's just say, let's say your banker, for example, has, you know, knows of a buyer and you're their customer as well. Well, you know, if there's something, some sort of a blind spot that comes up, how do you resolve that? You know, they, 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 it, it might, I guess in most cases, it really doesn't get resolved. You know, they can try and point them in the right direction, but it's a really, I mean, that, that's just a really uncomfortable situation. And in a lot of cases, you know, the transactions drag on too long, like much longer. In my experience, it's like for sale by owner or, um, you know, I'll call it off market transactions. Mm-hmm. Take, you know, two to three times as long and then sometimes fall out like at the end. So it's, it's a doubly worse scenario if it takes you six months to get to the finish line only to have it fall out and then you got to start over again. So, you know, that's not to say that every sale, you know, just because you hire a broker doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect. Right. Nothing is perfect, but we can help in the large majority of cases in avoiding pitfalls and telling you up front, here's the facts about your practice. Here's, here's how marketable it is. Um, because at the end of the day, we don't, as a broker, we don't get paid unless, uh, unless the deal closes and there's a good positive outcome, uh, for you. And so our, you know, we're, we're just as incentivized. Our, our incentives are aligned to where, you know, we want the transaction to close smoothly. We want you to get as much as you can out of the office and, and, uh, that's, that's it. So for the owner that's considering a sale, a uh, two-part question, how much runway or how much time that should they allow for, for due diligence and sort of fact-finding on selecting a broker and figuring out what their path should be? And then uh, what's, what's the normal timeline? And, and I understand there's outliers that are pretty common throughout these processes, but what's the normal timeline for once a buyer goes down the path of selling their practice, or excuse me, once a seller goes down the, the path of selling their practice, how long does that practice normally take? So we talked about this just a little bit before the, the, the podcast started. And I wish people would approach folks like myself or yourself, you know, five to 10 years in advance, say, hey, I'm going to sell at some point. What should I do? How should this be prepared? Usually, at the most, we'll have a year to two years of runway to kind of get the practice in the right place. So assuming that the practice is in the right place, and and that we have an approximate value that the seller is comfortable with. You know, it's going to take us to do a really good job. It's going to take us at least several weeks to prepare a really good prospectus. Um, there's some some brokerages on, on typically smaller firms that will just, they don't really prepare anything. It just gets listed. You know, here's some financials. You kind of deal with it. So our, our approach is more, more comprehensive. It tends to lend itself um, to assisting on larger, more complex transitions, um, mm-hmm. even though we'll still help, you know, smaller practices. It's just our process is very thorough. So it takes us several weeks to get that prospectus prepared. And then we enter what we call a pre-marketing phase where where our objective is to generate interest in the practice. There's some exclusivity there. There's, you know, we're, we're marketing to a list of people that have already expressed interest in that type of practice in that area. So that's where, you know, our database and our ability to, um, you know, have, have access to good data is, is really critical. And then we go to market, however long it takes to get an offer. And then in most cases, you know, the sale, once we have an offer in place, the due diligence period 
um, is typically can be anywhere from 30 to 60 days from the time we have an offer to closing. And then as far as selecting a broker, I think you'd mentioned that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I encourage people like, that's fine. Talk to the other brokers in town, ask them to send you a sample prospectus. Let's take a look at, at, at let's see what it looks like. You know, let's see how they're going to present your practice. You know, we, we welcome those opportunities to, to go have some competition. I think it's smart for sellers to do that. I would do the same thing myself. So, you know, having, um, you know, having some discussion and at least having an idea for what, you know, the other brokers have to offer, I think is great. And the, you know, one word of caution, there are some discount brokers, you know, mm-hmm. if it's, if the fee is extremely low and too good to be true, it's the old adage. I mean, it's, it is too good to be true. They're not get going what you to do pay for the job. So you get what you pay for. Exactly. It's not, you know, the, the, the folks that do, a really good job in this business. Um, you know, these fees kind of tend to fall in a, in a certain range, depending on the size of the practice. And if it's a discount broker, just, you know, what you're getting into, you know, and that may, that may be a good route for you. It's just, it's important to be educated. So since we're right there and we're on the topic of fees and as, as much as you're comfortable or not comfortable sharing, could you kind of at least at a high level break down how Menlo gets paid and, and what that process looks like? Yeah, and this is going to be pretty similar for pretty much all brokers. I mean, the fees are, if, if it's a, tra- a vanilla owner-user transaction, owner-user buyer, uh, your fees are going to range anywhere from, oh, I'll say on average, anywhere from 7 to 10%, depending on the size of the practice. So if it's smaller practice, it tends to be a slightly higher fee, tends to be closer to that 10% range. And if it's a bigger uh, practice, uh, then it tends to be a slightly, uh, then that fee tends to go down over time or, or with the increase. Um, sale price. You don't get paid until closing, um, and that's going to be true with most brokers. I, you know, there are some that charge a retainer or some sort of a fee up front. Right, just to um, cover some of the. Know, yeah. So you guys don't charge anything until, uh, or you guys are not paid anything until close um, for all the the legwork that goes on before that. If I. That's right, and exactly, and there's a tremendous. I mean, I can't. I don't know if I could even really fully describe how much work and effort goes into prepping and presenting a practice really well, but it's a lot. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks are concerned about signing an exclusivity agreement. And if I didn't sign exclusivity agreements, my wife would kill me because that means I would spend a bunch of time and money preparing a practice only to have it potentially, you know, kind of, I guess, slip out of my hands, so to speak, and have it be sold you know, off market or in some other fashion or, to, or with a different broker. So oftentimes, again, goes back to your, your quality brokerage shops are going to require some sort of exclusivity. Mm-hmm. I personally, in my experience, that's a good thing because then that means that we are just as, in, as invested in your success as you are. You know, I had a conversation just yesterday with, uh, with a seller, large office, and their philosophy was, hey, I'm going to, I don't want to sign the exclusivity. I, in fact, I won't sign it. I'm going to tell you that right up front. I said, okay, that's fine. Um, but if you find up some buyers, we'll pay you a fee if you find a buyer. And, I, and, and my response was, well, I already have potential buyers. I already know people that would be interested. But if I tell them, hey, there's this practice, they're going to immediately ask me, well, where's the perspective? What do the numbers look like? And, 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 then, and then what do I do? You know, then, I, then I'm going down the same road of, you know, I, I want to do a good job, so I'm going to you know, present some numbers. And so without that exclusivity, I don't have a ton of incentive to, 
to really do that um, unless unless there's some form of an agreement in place. So it 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 aligns the interests of the broker and the seller, mm-hmm. and it makes them invested in your in, in the overall outcome. Um, I, I think it's uh, I think it's probably essential to have a good to have a really good transition. I think for the right people, that's a fair that's a fair thing to do for both parties involved. Just maybe to clarify uh, that a little bit more, at what point in the process do you guys require the exclusivity uh, agreement to sort of separate the serious uh, sellers from the tire kickers, if you will? I will. I sell practices uh, across the country. Primarily, right now, there's a lot of activity that I'm seeing in California and in the West. You know, the, I, I would say a West region. Uh, there's also a fair amount of activity in in Florida and some of these other and some of these other markets. But we will entertain discussions all day long. If they want to call us up and talk to us, then we're happy to have a discussion. I'm happy to fly out and talk to you about it if if, if the opportunity is right. If you want to, you know, if you're a serious seller and you're contemplating, and we're down to you know selecting uh, a broker and you're getting close to the list, we're happy to meet with you in person. Um, and we will collect, I'll get to the point of collecting some financials and providing somewhat of a range of value. Um, the, at that point is right around when we'll have a listing agreement that gets signed. So they have to be ready to list, you know, they have to be ready to kind of take that step of moving forward. We don't want somebody signing that. That's not, you know, that that's kind of wishy-washy. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's at the point that the person has made the decision, okay, it's time for me to sell. I want to take the next step. I know about what my practice is worth. Oftentimes we can determine a, an approximate range of value, even just over the phone, but to really dial in that number, we need to, we need to have, it's helpful to see the practice. It's helpful to see the equipment, know what type of procedures are being performed, like to really dive into these reports. So there's several routes that people can go in this process. You know, we can we can have a discussion over the phone and move to a listing agreement. We can collect some financials and then move to a listing agreement. We can do you can engage us for a full blown appraisal, and then uh, and then and that's through a different party. I don't do the I don't do the full blown appraisals. We do essentially a limited or range of value appraisal prior to listing. But if somebody wants to pay for that in advance, we can do that and then possibly credit uh, credit a portion of that back at you know, at the time that the transaction closes, if that's down the road. Um, and then from there, it's moved to a listing agreement once we have a serious seller. So that's, those are really some of the different circumstances that we'll, we'll find ourselves in. I think that clarifies it. That's uh, really good background information. Thank you for walking everyone through that. Uh, so there's, I have a lot more questions, and I think there's uh, a number of other topics we could dive into about the transition process. Um, so from my perspective, there's a part two to this podcast. Is that something that you're interested in, in discussing and coming back for, David? Absolutely. We're happy. I mean, there's, there's quite a few things that we can discuss. I think um, you know, something that we didn't get into that, that would be helpful to a lot of people is just the current state of the dental market, what were evaluations looking like, how... Mm-hmm. You know, what are, how are the banks addressing some of these COVID situations in more detail and detail? Uh, there's, there's plenty more to talk about. And we'd be happy to come back. Awesome. In the interim, for people that uh, would like to get in touch with you and are interested in entertaining or beginning a conversation, what's the best way to do that? Yep. Email, phone call, anything works. My email address is david at menlotransitions.com. Um, you can find our website, menlotransitions.com. And... Uh, that's probably the, the easiest way to get started. We're happy to 
you know, as I mentioned, have some consultation, have a conversation, see what things look like, and at least get that preliminary ball rolling and, and get you pointed in the right direction. That is David Haynes, Vice President of National Practice Sales with Menlo Dental Transitions. David, thank you for, for sharing your expertise and for being a guest on the Practice Growth Podcast. Hey, thanks for having us on. Appreciate the invite. Terrell Advisors, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. The information presented should not be interpreted or construed as investment, legal, tax, financial planning, or wealth management advice. It does not substitute for personalized investment or financial planning from Terrell Advisors, LLC. This podcast conveys the views and opinions of Sean Terrell, and the information herein should not be considered a solicitation to engage in a particular investment or financial planning strategy. Information presented is for educational purposes only, and past performance is not indicative of future results.